welcome to Western Reaches episode 36. I am one of your hosts, Saf, and with me as always is Megan. Greetings. We have been away for a little while. We've both been traveling a lot and doing a lot, uh, but we're back for now and we are talking about Annihilation this week. The film, not the book, because I haven't read the book yet, uh, which will be our main topic and we'll cover that a little bit later on. But first, we're going to be talking about books and games as per usual. I don't... I was going to say something else, and I've already forgotten what it was. I'm a, I'm a great host. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We, uh, I was going to say, we, I'll probably talk about the book a little bit, because I really love Annihilation, the book, and the movie, my experience in the movie, was therefore touched by that, but I'm going to try to talk about them as two different entities, because I think in a lot of ways they are. Yeah, I remember because I saw the movie first on Netflix because it's out on Netflix here. And then because I was traveling in the States, I managed to go see it in cinemas over there, which was really cool. But someone I saw it with pointed like at the end was like, that's so different from the book. It's so different from the book. So I get I really want to read the book. So I get the feeling that I will have to approach him as, you know, two different things that have ties to each other, kind of. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more yeah. as I've kind of digested the movie. I feel like there's some value in criticizing it as compared to the book, and there's some value in thinking of them as the same or as different things. There are things that are good and bad regardless of whether it had the source material, but it's hard to separate the two for me because of the feelings that the book evoked. Yeah, that's very fair, and I think that's something that gets brought up whenever a movie is based off of a book. But speaking of books, let's talk about the books we've been reading recently. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Uh, I'll go first. Okay. So I'm going to do it a little bit out of order, though. I've been talking a lot about Before Mars by Emma Newman, which I reviewed for Den of Geek, in which uh, a review copy was uh, graciously provided to me. I So <laughs> this is a little bit embarrassing, but I guess I'll tell this whole story. Um, when I was asked to review it, I was basically talking to my editor about um, the series, and I forgot Emma Newman's name. So I didn't really, like, I didn't look it up on Goodreads. I was just like, yeah, that's like, I looked it up on Amazon or something and went like, that sounds like an interesting book. And went, yeah, like, I'll, I'll review that, but I'm not familiar with the series. And my editor said, that's fine. It's basically a standalone. She, she didn't mind if I hadn't read the other ones. And then as I was going through it and as I was looking at it on Goodreads, I realized, wait a second, I did read another one in the series. <laughs> and, and I felt, I felt very foolish, but it helped inform my, reading, because as soon as I realized that the same author had written Planetfall, I could see a lot of similarities. They both deal with women in isolation, with mental illness, who have to kind of deal with their own emotional histories while living on an alien planet. And before Mars had, like, really good emotional insight to its characters, there was a uh, kind of a scene that meant a lot to me was uh the main character is living on mars she's part of a small crew that's there to study and also to run a sort of reality show and she goes out onto the surface of mars for the first time and she feels 
underwhelmed because she's seen it in games before. They have these very realistic virtual reality worlds, and she's read so many descriptions of it. She's seen it on the reality show, and she watched it back on Earth, and she feels like it's fake. She doesn't feel a sense of wonder uh, that she should have, and instead of, or that she feels she should have, and instead of being amazed by being on another planet, she instead reflects on all these times in her life when she felt that she was underwhelmed by by things. And I really, I've never really seen that portrayed in a book before, that like, instead of the author evoking the drama of the scene, she did the exact opposite, because the character wasn't feeling it, wasn't feeling the drama. And there is some joy and some kind of the the high after the low in that scene, but the, that initial and uh, view onto Mars was very emotionally affecting to me. Uh, there were, I think, several parts like that that just really got into the heart of who this character was, and I really liked it. That sounds incredibly cool. I like that way of looking at it a lot, because I guess I've, I don't know, like, it may not be the same because I'm talking about me in my real life and not a character on Mars. Um, but like I've had times in my life where I've kind of had something cool happening but been kind of, you know, drawn away from it because of other things that were less whelming or overwhelming. Um, like it's hard to see the beauty in things sometimes because you're in your head a bit. Yeah, for me it especially reminded me of some places that I've gone, things like the Statue of Liberty, maybe, it doesn't look like you imagined it would look yeah. like. And you see the detail, you know, you see the dirt and the grime and stuff, as well as the beauty of it. And I could really uh, identify with that. Yeah, I think that's a really real thing, and I really like that. Yeah, it was really good, If you, especially if you read Planetfall before and, and really liked that. Uh, I definitely recommend this one. I believe it comes out in mid-April, so... Nice. Yep. Uh, I continue to read through the Vorkosigan saga, inspired by what is, I guess, now our sibling podcast, the Vorkosa cast, also by <laughs> Tashi Station. Uh, I started reading Setaganda, which is uh, the fourth or fifth. No, oh, don't ask me to explain the Vorkosigan <laughs> timeline. <laughs> it's one of the middle books in the series. And uh, I really liked it. It was more, so the previous ones had been either military science fiction or like kind of intrigue. This one was pretty straightforward mystery where Miles Morkosigan ends up in a, a, it's a human culture, but it's a different, it's an alien culture in that it's very different from the one he's from. Um, he winds up in this unusual place having to solve a mystery of who who killed someone and it's a, it I thought it moved very briskly it kept you wondering what was going on and who who did it right so it functioned really well as a mystery uh, I really like miles and the I I didn't love the explanation of some of the ideas the structure of the the society was not fully explained, and it was one of those things where I wasn't sure what I was supposed to know as compared to what the characters knew, right? So I didn't know if I had the same amount of information as the characters or not, which to me made it, like, makes it much harder to solve or even understand how to engage with a puzzle, because you're not sure whether you have all the clues. But overall, I liked it, and I'm gonna. I plan to continue uh, reading those. Maybe 
I, I might be a little off to uh, read them at the same time as the Borkosa cast, but maybe we'll align eventually. <laughs> <laughs> One day. I actually ordered... I guess chronologically the first book in that saga um, at the library. It hasn't come in yet, but my friend was telling me all about it and telling me why I would like it and was like, order this book, this particular book, because I was very confused by the amount of books there were and the orders (laughs) of them. Um, So she just told me which one to order, and I did. And so I'm going to be starting that soon too. Cool. I'm. It's been fun to read it because I know a lot of people. Like Tor is doing a reread. Atashi Station's doing this podcast. It it's sort of trendy to read them right now. So I'm enjoying being able to talk to uh, other people about them. And they are the timeline is very confusing. Like Nancy <laughs> has a spreadsheet. Ask her for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course she does. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> So one of the books uh, that was most remarkable for me in the last couple months was not science fiction, and I picked it up because it was about women as artistic collaborators. Um, it's a book called uh, a novel called The Animators, which is, as it sounds like, about uh, two animation students who end up working on art house type films there they make independent movies their style the thing that the reference that most clearly helped me understand their style because a lot of it was kind of stuff i didn't i've never been in this particular art so i don't get all the references but ren and stimpy was the uh (laughs) the one i was most familiar with not that those were comedic necessarily but they were like that like adult uh bizarre cartoons is what they made yeah and they were making uh, a movie about the, the one woman's family. And I really wanted it to be not necessarily a, a wholesome story, because it's, it's like, you know, things were going to get dramatic sometimes. But I wanted it to be a story about friendship. And it, it was that. It was also, it, it was not representative of my artistic experience at all, which is not, like... I don't think that's a valid criticism, and that's not, like, if I was going to formally review it, that would not come into account as much as it is going to be when I just casually talk about it like this, but that was definitely part of my experience of, uh, the characters were, like, hard drinking, like, like, party people, they were very acerbic to one another and to their friends, they were very, um, kind of, uh, how do I, like, they were much more risk-taking than I am in any aspect of my life. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was not quite what I expected, but it was good. There's a lot of sort of talk about, uh, about class, about the one, uh, girl is from a relatively impoverished town and talks about how she deals with that. But it ended up, especially toward the end, there was, so the writing was good, the prose was fine, the, the discussion of the art itself, they talked a lot about, like, you know, stay up long nights, uh, imbibing various substances to get their work done, and the descriptions of all that were, were very good, but especially toward the end, the, the, the plot took a turn almost to the soap opera, like, there was a whole subplot about, like, maybe one of this person is sleeping with her brother, but she didn't know it was her brother, and 
there's a, the one girl, so the one artist is gay and the other is straight, and there's someone who, toward the end, like a, a rival or something, I don't remember, someone says in a sort of mean way that, like, she was only friends with you because she was actually, like like, in love with you the whole time, but you never reciprocated that, and you didn't even really know that's what happening, and it wasn't in, like, a sort of tragic way, it was like they were using that as a mean thing, like, she only stayed with you because she was gay kind of thing, Ooh. which I thought was, it was meant as a barb, but it also, like, I didn't really want this to be about that, I wanted it to be about, like, these two people can have a friendship, you know? Yeah. Um... So it it took a turn for the like very dramatic, which just wasn't really to my taste. So it was good, but it's still. I kept thinking about um, I think it's one hundred thousand worlds, the one about the Comic Con scene. Oh yeah, that reflected my like art experience in, in a lot more uh, in in a lot of ways, and also had this literary tone to it. I like that one better, I think, purely based on my own interests, not necessarily on its literary merit, but also maybe a bit on that, too. That's very fair, I think. It was, like, it was engaging. I read the whole, you know, read the whole thing, but it was, it was, some of the, some of the parts were, like, I, yeah, I felt like I was watching a soap opera. <laughs> I, that happens with literary fiction, sometimes too often for my liking. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for I keep trying literary fiction and it's just not my thing. The same way that, like, someone could probably, like, read science fiction and say, you know, they kept having laser battles. It's, why do you have to have the laser battles? And I'm like, obviously. Maybe it's just not my genre. Yeah, I keep having that same problem whenever I try. I try so hard to read literary fiction sometimes, but it just, something about it always just kind of bounces me back off of it again. And I couldn't help but feel that I wanted, like, I just wanted the people in this book to be nicer. Like, I wanted everyone to be more <laughs> noble. Like, I, I love yeah. that. It's so wholesome. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> I, uh, so a couple weeks ago, my good friend and I did our Five Boroughs bookstore tour. So we went to a bunch of independent bookstores in New York City. And one of the things that I picked up while I was there was a book called Living by Fiction, which is a nonfiction guide to kind of the writing life and the writing philosophy, but also the the trends of novels in, um, I believe it was in the 80s, and the idea of what is a modern novel, what are the like contemporary traits of novels in terms of what they deal with and how the characterization is like crafted so it was very academic it was very rigorous it also asked a lot of questions that I've kind of been asking myself such as how do you write about like unpleasant things without making your prose unpleasant or boring things without making your prose boring it was like how do you feel, how do you write about abs absence when absence is itself a lack of content, right? Um, mm. It unfortunately didn't quite answer those questions. It, it left you with as many questions as it started with, but it asked these really interesting questions about sort of, 
what do people, what are people really trying to do when we make fiction? So that was, uh, it's definitely something that I think I'd want to return to again. Like, I, I feel like I digested, like, a really big meal and I need to have some, uh, I need to, like, have some palate cleansers and then I can go back to it because it was really dense. But it was good <laughs> and it, if nothing else, made me kind of realize that other writers and like other better writers have been thinking about this these kind of things and also might not have answers even though they've widely read uh more than i have yeah i think some things like that just don't have answers i guess because it's partly up to interpretation and partly up to like what feels right to you if anything does and i think you know, fiction's always kind of striving to answer those questions, especially when it comes to your writing about, like, loss and absence and things that are ugly and hard. Um, they're good questions to consider when you are a writer. She talked about Pynchon, which I've only read, like, one Pynchon novel, but he basically creates this just mass of references and bizarre things and imagery and creates such a complete atmosphere that he can then like burrow out holes in that atmosphere and create a sort of vacuum in that way and that was the one that I was like oh I can kind of see that but like y y not everybody's gonna be pinching you know <laughs> like yeah <laughs> it was it was uh it was very interesting I recommend it I think I might check that out I've been looking for more nonfiction about writing um because i feel like i'm kind of in a rut at the moment which is hard to get out of uh so i have been trying to read more i must have been reading articles and stuff and mostly about game design because you know i also do game design um but i'm always looking for good stuff about writing fiction because it's hard sometimes it's really hard did you read bird by bird i think i started it that's another, it's a pretty common recommendation that's more about the philosophy, kind of about living with yourself as much as it is about living with your writing, <laughs> but that's another very, it's a pretty commonly recommended one, so if you haven't checked that out, that's a good choice, I think. I will definitely check that out. Hmm. Ooh, is it my turn now? It is your turn now. Oh, okay. I have not read anywhere near as much as you have this last while. Um, I got entirely sucked into the Silo Trilogy by Hugh Howie. That seems wrong. Um, <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah, that's, that seems right. Um, because a friend recommended that to me relatively recently. And I started Wool, which is the first book of the trilogy. Uh... I read a bit of it like a couple years back and I only read like one chapter and I was like this is depressing I don't want to read this and I just stopped reading it I think I'd returned to the library and I just didn't pick it back up again um and so I made an actual decent effort this time and really enjoyed it um the prose is just something about his prose just gets gets to me um I don't I couldn't in, quite in a bad way no in a good in a good way okay. I couldn't quite figure out what it was but he just I think it's the way he, like, writes metaphors um, just blends in really well with the rest of the writing. Uh, I think the first book had the best prose and writing style for me of them all. The later ones kind of felt a bit more flat somehow, but the whole trilogy is still really good, and I got really, really into it because it does, like, it switches, like, the first book is, like, uh, 
hundreds of years into the future and then the first book swaps between like prior to that and then hundreds of years prior to that um and so all three books kind of jump times a little bit and i like series that do that because i like being able to piece um the pieces of a story in a world together in that kind of puzzle kind of way um which may come from the fact that i read comics when i was little non-chronologically i because i would just have random trades or random paperbacks and I'd just read those and so my knowledge of like marvel in the years that i read marvel we were like very put together like a puzzle so i'd read a book that was like civil war and then i'd read another trade that was like years before that and another trade that was like years after that and everything would kind of get put together slowly uh and i really enjoy that in books that do it actively instead of me just doing it because i'm bad at finding that's an interesting comparison Um, to comics because i think we all we all you and i both tend to like um, things that do that, that kind of unfold the world in different orders. I think of the the Broken Earth trilogy as the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. And I never really thought of that. It is, it's sort of like that feeling of, of discovery, right? Of reading a, a, a tie-in series or a comic book out of order, except instead of being out of order because you found them at different bookshops on different days, they're out of order because the author planned them that way. Yeah. Yeah, and I really liked that. Um, so I really got into this to the point that I think I was reading some of it while I was on the phone with someone, and <laughs> I started like swearing about part of a thing that happened because I didn't see it coming. And my friend asked me if I was okay, like genuinely thinking there was something wrong in my life <laughs> because of how into it I'd gotten. Um, <laughs> so I highly recommend these books. Uh, my biggest problem with that is that he has these books like Wool, Shift, and Dust. And I got out the book Sand thinking it was the second book in the... I didn't even realize it was a trilogy to begin with, actually. I just thought they were like books set in the same universe that were unrelated. Uh, so I got out Sand, which is an entirely different book, entirely different series, entirely different world. Um, <laughs> thinking it was part of it because it's got the name yeah. Sand and I got it confused with Dust. <laughs> and I saw all the praise on the back of the book or on the start of the book being like... Um, praising the Silo trilogy, and I was like, hang on, something seems wrong here, and I started the book and realized I was very off. So I haven't actually read any Sand apart from the first chapter, because I was just really confused. But Silo trilogy, very good. I very much enjoyed it. And I was so sad, because I went to America, I had, like, the big hardcovers out from the library, and I couldn't take the third book with me, even though I was reading it, because it was a big hardcover, and it might have to be returned to the library while I was gone. Um, and I didn't want whatever late fine I would get from taking the book out of the country. So I was really upset about that. And then while I was in America, I went to like this tiny little bookstore and found a paperback version of that book for $3. And I was nice. so happy. <laughs> I was so thrilled. So now I own a very small paperback version of Dust. A and very small American that. paperback. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it was, I think it was, you know. The heavens opened up and shined down upon this book for me, and were like, "You have to read this." So I did, and it was. It was I a good uh, book. I read the first one. Now I'm mixing the names up. Wool, a long time ago, and yes. I remember really liking it, and that it did have that great sense of discovery. And like, I think the very end maybe was this like incredible twist, but I don't think yeah. I ever read further than that. The first book has a really special charm to it. I think. I'm not sure what it is about later books. It's possibly because they reveal more about what happened and there's more knowledge in them. The first book just has this amazing, like, you don't know what's happening. You're discovering along with the characters. And it has this amazing theme of truth 
and how dangerous truth can be and why people do lie and why finding the truth can be good or can be bad. Mm, I and I that. really enjoyed that. Um, and the yeah, the later two books also have a lot of that. And the books are written so well in the way that you still just, you don't know what the actual truth of the entire series is until right at the end. Like it, it hides it really well. And by the, like I was near the end of the third book and I still couldn't entirely tell what was actually the real truth of everything. Um, it does clear it up in the end. You do get an answer, but I was just like, I don't understand what's happening and it's still happening. <laughs> it's still happening. That's a, uh... That's cool. So, <laughs> speaking of the heavens opening up, do you want to talk about your journey with Children of God? Yes! Oh my god. So, I literally did not know the Sparrow had a sequel, because I just don't look up books, ever. I just get recommended them, and I'll get them out from the library, and I'll read them, and that's it. Um, so, I read The Sparrow last year, based on Megan's recommendation, and I really loved and then it. it. changed um, and, then and I ruined your life. Yeah, it did. But I, I still love it. <laughs> but then I saw you saying on Twitter something about, like, Children of God is the sequel of that book. And I was like, wait, The Sparrow had a sequel? Um, <laughs> and so the moment I found out about that, I went and got this book, um, Children of God, which is a direct sequel to The Sparrow. And it's devouring my life, just like The Sparrow did. I'm so into it already. I'm two-thirds of the way through it. I'm almost done. And I'm afraid of what's going to happen at the end. I'm afraid. I need to reread this one because this is one where my best friend and I read it around the same time. And, like, we have head canon for it. Like, we've practically written fan fiction <laughs> about this very, oh my God, I love that. very serious, you know, theology text slash science fiction first contact novel. <laughs> so I, it, I need to read the second one again because there was so much, so much. Yeah, this book has a lot in it. It's very theological. Um, and coming at this as like an agnostic is interesting because it's a lot of discussion that I've never had in my life, never considered in my life because, you know, I'm not religious. Um, but it's really interesting stuff to read because it does like open your eyes to why people believe things and why people do what they do and how that belief can lead them in different directions, like good or bad and how it can kind of bring them back from the bad as well. Um, and there's so much deep conversation, so much philosophy in this book that, um, like, I really enjoy it. It really makes me think about religion and life and the galaxy and the universe in other ways. But it's still a science fiction novel, so every now and then you get just, like, really sci-fi stuff, and it was like, yeah, this is what I like. So it's got a really good balance of like, you know, classic science fiction, and also making you think really deeply about religion and philosophy and life. Yeah, it's got the the alien, like, food chain is incredibly well built. Mm. And it's so good. Yeah, the, uh, the first book was a very Catholic book, I think. And I, I think the second one is a very Jewish book. And they're both very interesting in those ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Um, and I really enjoy it. I The one thing I kind of am, like, iffy on is that I'm a little... I guess it's because I've just read it a couple times recently. There's kind of the trope of the autistic son that is kind of like the godchild in science fiction things. I was um, wondering I'm, what you, you were going to think about that because I remember that the, the character has very severe autism, right? And he, yeah, it's quite yeah, and severe. he doesn't have really like a support structure at all. So he does become this sort of mysterious person who's very separate from the rest. And I, 
I would like be interested to hear what people who are autistic think of that portrayal because it was a very um, like vivid portrayal, but I don't know how or if it falls into a stereotype or how accurate it is in any way. Yeah, I'm not sure how much it falls into stereotypes. Like, I'm not autistic as far as I know. I might have a minor, minorly have it, um, but nowhere near on the level of this character. Uh, and it's, it's not so much the way the character's written, it's just the fact that this has kind of become a trope in a couple of books I've read lately. Because um, there's this book, and then there's the two, like, the lightning, Ada Palmer's books. And there's, like, <laughs> and I don't know if he's autistic or not, but he's written like he is, kind of godchild in that as well. And I'm just like, why is this a thing? Um, I guess because autistic people with, like, serious autism as children kind of more in the older days, I guess, were seen as being apart from it all and above it all. And it makes sense that this kind of becomes a thing, but it's just, it's a weird stereotype. Um, and I don't know how I feel about it entirely, but... I do love what they do with his whole fear of reading everything. Like, that is very cool. Yeah, definitely a series that gives you a ton to think about. Yeah, that's for sure. It's a very dense series. For such small books, they're very dense books. Yes. Um, and like I said, I'm I'm terrified of how this is going to end, because I have no clue where it's going. Um, but I enjoy it so much. If we... We can go, speaking of gods, I've been playing Assassin's Creed Origins. <laughs> there we go. I was like, oh, come on. There must be a good thing in here. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I knew it was there. Um, another religious character in a different religion entirely. Um, I finished Assassin's Creed Origins in as much as you can finish an open world game with several DLC, I, which I have not played. Um I beat the the main quest, the main story, and I have one more mission to do, which is the one that introduces more of the science fiction. And I really liked it. It was... I, I keep recommending it to people because it's... I want more people to talk to about it, but it's also, like, a hundred-hour commitment or something. So I understand if, like, not everybody's gonna give, like, devote that much time to this enormous Assassin's Creed game. But overall, I really enjoyed the story. I found it to be a game that I could either do the story and always be entertained by it, or a game where I could just go explore the world and just see things. I spent quite a while just running around the desert, and there are places where you go to, like, the white desert especially, that I learned things I'd never known before about the real world. I didn't know the, there was a white desert that looked like that. It has white sand and all these strange rock formations, and, like, I'm 28. I did not know that existed on my planet, and I know it now because of this game, so that's pretty <laughs> cool. I, uh, I really liked... Aya, the female assassin, and you can play as her a little bit, but you cannot play as her nearly as much as I would have liked. You can play as her in, like, a kind of a closed area. She gets some really cool scenes, and I thought the way her and Bayek's relationship was handled was kind of surprisingly mature. Like, not, I guess, I don't know if I want to say surprisingly, because there's, like, video games are not all, there are video games that deal with, like, serious like adult relationships with more nuance than like the average i don't know uh 
like shooter games don't really deal with that with any <laughs> any nuance, but there are <laughs> games that do, right? Um, but it uh, Aya and Bayek felt very much like two adults, their and their parents, who had been bound together by grief. And when they eventually, the grief begins to heal, you see that their relationship was built partially on grief, and the healing process actually drives them further away from each other, and their relationship is not portrayed as a reward in any way, it's not portrayed as um, an endgame, it's just these two people that had a marriage and then didn't anymore, and that was interesting to me, and uh, I both... I like both of them. They both have very different attitudes, but I, I like liked and understood enough of them for the purposes of the game to really appreciate their characterization. That's, uh, yeah, I, there's some side characters that I latched onto, but just in the way that, like, you know, it's kind of fun to, like, uh, Jay, Jay Shaw and I were joking about shipping side characters. Like, it was just fun. <laughs> it's not, like, I don't think it's gonna, you know, take over my life like Star Wars did, but it was a really solid, fun, you know, fictional world to run around in for a while. That's really good to hear. I haven't played an Assassin's Creed game in forever, but it's good to hear that they're still, still making good things. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, I was going to kind of talk about my Assassin's Creed context, too. I, a, a friend of mine, um, a couple friends are really, I think I've talked about them before, who are really into Assassin's Creed. So I was playing, I've been talking to them about, they, they've been playing, like, the Ezio games, and I think Assassin's Creed Rogue, and the original, like, I'm, I, to get regular reports about which Assassin's Creed is being played in my friend group. <laughs> so it's been really kind of nice to get back into that's just like something we have to talk about. So that's been good. I myself, I don't even know if I own the first one, but it's, <laughs> but it's close to my heart. I think that's what's really important is like not so much playing the other games, but having them with your friends. Yeah, and now I have a reference point, because I can say, oh, like, I think this thing about Bayek is relevant to this thing. And, like, Bayek and Altair are so hilariously different. Bayek is so, <laughs> he's so responsible, and, like, he's very religious, and he's very, like, he's a dad. And a lot of the other assassins, like, Ezio is, like, 17, Altair is, just kind of hates everyone. Like, <laughs> in comparison... Bayek is incredibly mature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so that's been fun. I uh, next, I real, I recently discovered a whole section of the desert that I haven't explored before, including one of the stone circles, which are the saddest side quests. So it took me like until like level thirty-eight to find them, but there's. So you're, the like inciting incident is that your son dies, Bayek's son dies, and you go to this uh, these crop. No, I was about to say crop circles. That's not correct at all. <laughs> <laughs> and then the aliens appear. No, you go to these like you know ancient Stonehenge style stone circles, <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, you see 
there's a little mini game that goes along with them, but more importantly, there's flashbacks to Bayek and his son, who, like, wanted to learn to identify all the stars. And it's like, oh no, this is really oh. sad. It's hard to find them, because they're not really marked on the map. You just have to locate them, and recently I discovered somebody had taken a photo of one, and the photos appear on, like, because it's always online. So if you take a photo, it appears to anybody else who's online at the same time. So somebody had taken a photo of one, and I was like, oh, thank you. Like, you have pointed me in the direction of one. (laughs) Like, so I really appreciate that person. Um, Shout out to whoever that was. (laughs) And, but those are, like, really nice. And it's um, a good way to make a side quest emotionally fulfilling, as well as just another thing to kind of check off your list of stuff to do. I really like those kinds of quests. That kind of reminds me of the vantage points in Horizon. Yeah, I was just gonna say, or the uh, the animal figurines. Yeah, I really, I think I talked to someone at GDC. I don't remember if they, I don't think they'd worked on any of these games. Um, maybe they had, I don't remember who they were. But we were talking about making like side quests and collectibles. Um, and like finding stuff more relevant to players and more fun to players. And a lot of it is, yeah, having that kind of like narrative power with it so like the the animal figurines and the vantage points in horizon have such like emotional strength to them because they tell a story and then you've got the stone circles and assassin's creed that you know link back to his relationship with his son yeah it was just this great attention to detail in terms of how that story could be made its own little journey yeah i really love games that put that attention into things yeah, I uh, I want to play the DLC. There are a couple DLC that look good, but I was putting them off because I couldn't justify buying them before I'd completed the end of the game because uh, there's so much to do. I just like couldn't justify it. And then I bought plane tickets, and now I'm like, well, there goes my game budget. So it <laughs> might it might be a little while until I buy them, but I do plan to get the DLC. I just have to be just have to be pushed to do it and uh, have the money. Yep, gotta love those plane tickets and how expensive they are. Yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to all lots of travel coming up, but uh, some that I have to pay for. So, <laughs> yeah, I feel that. So, what have you been playing? It's a really good question. Um, I've played a little bit of Destiny, a little bit of Andromeda lately, but nothing that I can really talk about with either of those games. Uh, but I have played, finally, after a million years of me too, played The Swapper, which is a small puzzle game about a person, I think, exploring an abandoned science facility. Um, and they find a gun, I guess. A machine that can make like swappers or swapped clones of them um and they can swap into those bodies and like send their soul into those bodies and take control of those bodies uh and so it's like yeah kind of a puzzle game kind of similar to portal in a lot of ways you got to learn to think in the way that the game needs you to think to solve the puzzles and once it kind of clicks it makes a lot of sense and it's a really cool game um with like a really cool story in the background and it's got such a re- it's got a really good atmosphere. I was really freaked out through a lot of it because it's really creepy, uh, and the puzzles are really really well done. Because you hit ones where you're just I spent the last one I spent three or four hours on it. I was so stuck and I was so mad because I was like this puzzle is impossible. There's no way to do this. And then I figured it out and I was like that was really easy. I feel like an idiot now. Uh-huh. Um, so it's kind of like that kind of game where you'll just you will not understand what it wants you to do. And then once it clicks, 
it's really easy. Like, it's it's so easy. Um, if I played that game again, I could probably finish it in, like, half an hour now. Like, I know it really well. Um, but yeah, it's so good. My... I can't really call it a gripe because it's just on me, but I think the ending could have gone differently. Like, I, <laughs> I ended up dying right at the end of the game because I thought the game was telling me to make a choice that it was didn't even consider telling me to make. I was just reading the game wrong. Um, <laughs> so I got a game over and had to start it again. Not Aww. from the start, just from like that last little ending bit. Because um, I was talking to a friend as it was happening and I was like, oh my god, this is so cool that the game is making me do this. And then I did it and I was like, oh. No, it wasn't telling me to do that. That was just me. Um, so the ending was a little bit... I don't know. It didn't entirely feel like it wrapped up and explained the story entirely by the end. But still a really solid puzzle game and really cool atmosphere. And it was I loved it a lot. Cool. And then another small indie game I played recently, which I've been waiting forever to play, was Florence, which is the first game by Mountains, which is a company in Australia. Um, and it's a small narrative mobile game about a woman called Florence and her relationship with herself and her mother and a man she falls in love with whose name I've forgotten I can't remember what it is if it's even in the I'm sure it's in the game I don't know um either way it's a it's a gambling for, for forward to for ages um one of the guys he was something important. Ken Wong, he worked on Monument Valley. I feel really bad. I can't remember his role because he is my friend. But he, he started Mountains. And so this is a game that he worked on. Oh, and cool. It's gorgeous. I think I talked about it a bit after PAX Australia last year because I managed to play a demo. And it's got a bunch of little vignettes that tell a story about, you know, Florence. And they the mechanics change in each vignette to kind of match what the story is telling you. So you play different bits differently to match what the story is trying to make you do and it works really effectively because you end up like actively feeling involved in what's happening in the game um like i think i talked about it in last time i talked about this game but there's like a conversation mechanic where you're talking with the guy and in the first dates you're putting together like puzzle pieces to make a conversation bubble that goes up for you talking in response yeah. to it and as the dates go on the the puzzles get easier until it's just one dialogue bubble you're just putting up there yourself uh which symbolizes you know conversation getting easier among like throughout dates with this guy and it's, it's just smart stuff like that it's really good and i thoroughly recommend this game it's quite short and after i finished it i messaged ken accusing him of making me cry because i did cry a little bit yeah i remember that you were telling me about that mechanic and then i've heard really good reviews of that since uh since it came out yeah it looks like Pretty much everyone that plays it really enjoys it in some way. Like, I think it's quite a touching game. Like, it's it's very real. It's extremely real. And it also has, like, <laughs> it's good diversity-wise as well, because the main characters aren't white. Um, and so it kind of also gives you a bit of an insight into how other cultures live lives. And, like, it's still a Western um, setting, but it has a bit of a view into other people going through similar things to me, I guess, because I'm a young adult and kind of in the same age as Florence and going through things like this as well. And it's just, it's a beautiful game. It has no dialogue. It has no writing apart from title screens and stuff. And it's just so good. I love it so much. Cool. I, uh, yeah, I, I yeah. don't know if I'll pick that one up. It's one that I kind of like, it definitely looks like really good quality, but it's not really my thing, but I definitely appreciate what mm. I've seen about it so far. Yeah, that's very fair. I don't think it will be everyone's thing, because, yeah, it's very... It's its own little thing. 
I want more games like this though. I hope like kind of slice of life games like this become more of a thing that this encourages them because I love them. And this one has such cool mechanics. Like the design of it is really good. Um, yeah. And speaking of small games, uh, a friend and I recently, recently, yeah, recently made a game for the April Fool's Jam on itch.io, uh, which is a jam with the, th- the theme. The requirement is you have to make a game that plays a trick on the player, I guess. Uh, so we made a game called Like You Mean It, which is a dance-off with someone. You've got to dance off against someone, and that's the game. It's very short. <laughs> it's extremely short, uh, but we are both we are both quite like it a lot. So if you want to play it, I will put a link to it in the show notes, and also you can just Google itch.io like you mean it, I guess, and it'll turn up at some point. I do want to play it, and that's interesting. I didn't know <laughs> that it, like, plays a trick on the player. I gotta say, when you first talked about it being a dance-off, I was thinking about um, the game uh, With Those We Love Alive, which had an art component where you had to draw or were encouraged to draw things along with the uh, game. So I thought, am I gonna end up dancing in real life? So, I ask you... <laughs> Does it involve dancing in real life? <laughs> you don't have to dance in real life, but if you want to dance, you can. Um, <laughs> okay, great answer. <laughs> while we were writing, while we were writing for it, we um did we danced like the characters in the game. I did a few of those dance moves to get into the mind space of the character. Uh, my friend made my friend Rakia made all of the little gifts you see, which are adorable. They're two frame eight bit dance gifts, and I I love them. They fill me with joy, especially the hip thrust is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah if you like weird little games um that were made in a couple of days go play that if you want it, i would appreciate it people thank cool and i have uh tweeted it before and may tweet it again thank you all right so let's talk about the big topic annihilation because this movie was something um yeah so megan you read the book did you read it recently or was it a while ago. It was a while ago. I read it, um, I'm not sure if it was when it came out or not. It was, mm, trying to think, my current, like, lodestone, my, the spot around which all of my reading chronologically revolves is (laughs) Ancillary Justice, and I think I read Annihilation after Ancillary Justice came out, but I don't quite remember. So <laughs> it was uh, it was you know, some years ago, which I when I read it for the first time, and I adored it, and uh, I was very excited to hear about the movie. Um, and then after the movie came out, I read the book again in about six hours to remind myself of what what was the same and what was different. That's fair. Have you read the whole trilogy? Because it's a trilogy, right? Yes. Um, unfortunately, or at least so far as the people I've spoken to uh, are concerned, the the second and third book are not as good. It, it's almost... I would almost recommend reading only the first one because it, it stands alone very well and the others are... They're okay. But I have read them, yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. I remember when I was at the library that I got uh, dust at, I saw not the library the bookstore i saw the other two books in it and i was like wow those look really cool they're by vandermeer and i saw that they were part of the southern reaches trilogy and it just didn't occur to me that they were like (laughs) the other two books in this trilogy and then i was watching the movie again in the cinemas and it was like they mentioned the southern reach and i was like oh my god of course that's that trilogy like 
you dumbass. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So I yeah, could have... We'll we've both had yeah. uh, an instance of forgetting how series work recently. <laughs> yeah, we have, so it's fine. We've, we're both equal in that now. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is fine. Yeah, so I'm guessing you saw this in cinema, or in the theatre. What do you call them over there? Yes, Movie the theatre. The theater. Yes. I'm guessing you saw it there. Yes. You're in America. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I, I thought it was very strange that it did not come out in the theater um, internationally. There was, the, yeah. the thing that was going around was that it was considered too intellectual, quote. I think for... also, also because it had like a whole woman cast as well. Yeah. They just didn't expect it to do well. And it's like, it's not going to do well if you don't advertise it and release it places. Like Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's definitely part of it is they thought it wouldn't sell because it was ladies. And then, so they sort of, you know, stopped it before it could fail, I guess. But yeah, it's gotten... I hope it does well on Netflix outside of America to kind of prove its point. Um, it's kind of, because I remember, because this is by Alex Garland, right? And he did Ex Machina, yes. if I remember correctly. Yeah, I saw Ex Machina in cinema because, in the theater, because I was in America like, I was in Hawaii when it was out in cinemas, and so I went and saw it in cinemas, and it never came out in New Zealand. And I don't know why, but I'm really glad I got to see it there. And again, I was in America while Annihilation was in theater, so I got to go see it on the big screen, even though I had literally just watched it on Netflix as well, because my friends that I live with and I were waiting for it to come out. Like, the moment it came out on <laughs> Netflix, we started watching it. We were so excited for this movie. Um, so I guess the good thing about it being on Netflix was it was easy to watch it the moment it came out, but the bad thing was that you do miss a lot when it's on a smaller screen. A friend and I went on, uh, like, the opening day, and we went to this sort of, the nearest theatre to me is kind of crumbling. They say that it's been going to be <laughs> renovated for years and years, but it's never renovated, and, like, not a lot of people go to it, and it's sort of disheartening but it was close so and it's not even cheap it's like a regular price <laughs> for this crumbling theater but so we go and one of the first like we're just sitting there during the credits and like something starts clicking in the walls like there are these strange creaking sounds and we were like this is perfect <laughs> like this is so <laughs> atmospheric we feel engaged we feel like we are ready <laughs> um but uh overall i really liked it but i don't necessarily want to see it again um for two reasons one it was really really scary and <laughs> it's so creepy it's the the scene i mean everybody talks about the scene with the bear but i love the <sighs> scene with the bear and also really don't want to watch it again <laughs> yeah that's fair got to say having seen that scene twice it gets no better the second time, especially when the first time was on a small screen and the second time was in the theater because I was like, I'd seen it first time, right? And I was like, that was creepy. That was incredibly scary, but I'm fine. I know it's happening now, so I'm ready. And then, of course, in the cinema, it's like huge screen and like sound design all over the place. Like the sound is everywhere. And so I was just seeing this like, nope. Nope, I was not ready for how horrifying this was going to be yeah. a second time. Yeah, and the end, too. The sound design at the end is really remarkable. Ooh. And you can yeah, almost hear... Yeah, and that's hear, so like, much better like in theater. That's yeah. so much better in theater. It doesn't have as much of an effect on the screen, like small screen. You can like hear how it was sort of almost straining the like audio capability of the yeah. theater, um, which was which is really cool. I, I'm still I will never be over the 
tweet somebody made about how Annihilation soundtrack is entirely either folk music or like horrible symphonic screams. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I love that so much. The the jarring change yes. in music is just so good. And that's one of my favorite things about that movie. I think it's just that bit where that happens and I was just like, oh this is great. Yes, I, I, um, I remember going into this movie, I had I had for one thing, because I don't research anything, I had no clue it was based on a Vandermeer book. I don't know how I didn't know that, but I didn't know that. And I also did not know it was a horror film or like sci-fi surreal horror i didn't know it had horror elements in it and so i tweeted about going to see it i tweeted about the fact i was going to see it and my friend replied with you're brave and i was like oh no (laughs) surprise um so i was yeah that was kind of a surprise i was somewhat unprepared for that and when the movie ended it came with like based on a book by vandermeer and i was like wow that makes so much (laughs) sense everything makes sense now (laughs) I feel like this book is definitely, and this movie, but more so the book is just, like, our brand, so. um, uh, (laughs) Yeah. So, the sound, like, so the very beginning, where it's, like, the creepy trees and the folk music, I was so there for it. I was like, this is exactly the atmosphere I think this should have, like, this is great. Um, The ending uh, was not as weird as i hoped it would be actually which i guess we can get into uh, some criticism and we can get into the characterization as as you wish but i guess my answer to like whether i liked it is complicated because i did enjoy it and i think like a lot of the praise that i hear from it i agree with but on the other hand there were a lot of things that i didn't like that were changes from the book and i don't think i would have liked them even if they, like, part of the reason I liked the book was because it, it did certain things differently and the movie kind of ho- Hollywoodized things. Um, so the ending, I loved the ending right up until, like, the last 20 minutes or so. And that's definitely when it gets, like, kind of people were saying it, it gets really bizarre, and it does, but not in the way that the book does, right? I don't know. Where do you want to take it from there? Interesting. I'm, ooh, I'm curious. I'm very curious. Um, I, yeah, the ending, I really like the ending up until, like, let's just talk about spoilers. I'm going to put a spoiler warning in here because it's really hard to talk about this without any spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie yet and you don't want spoilers, go watch it now. Um, Or when you have free time and don't listen further. If you don't care about spoilers or you've already seen the movie, continue on as you please. Um, So I liked it up until, like, that weird clone thing comes out and with her in the lighthouse. I really liked the bit leading up to that when the sound design, like, changes and the music changes and there's the weird kaleidoscope stuff. But then the moment, like, the weird alien thing is there, I'm just like, okay, this is just bizarre. And from that point on, it's bizarre, but in a way that doesn't, like, make sense with everything else, I guess. I agree. I I love the thing with, like, the eyeball or whatever, the amorphous mm. thing and that's when the sound gets really shattering and all that was really neat and then like a guy or I guess a girl in a morph suit comes out and <laughs> and dances with Natalie Portman and there were some it's, scenes where I was like where it this like is- lies down next to her and like it's like staying there looking at her and then lies down next to her and like a mimics her. I'm like, what is it doing? Why is it doing that? Yeah, and, and it was weirdly like sensual, but it it also wasn't scary to me. 
Like, other parts yeah. of the movie had been very scary, and this was, like, sort of uncanny, but I also just couldn't take away the the connection that it looked like somebody in a morph suit, like, just one of those, yeah, like... Yeah, I couldn't get over that. ...spandex things, and it, it... It was... It definitely left me going, like, that was... Uh, kind of silly, rather than, like, that was really strange. Yeah, I do like the idea of, like, the fire um, burning. Like, I love the bit where, it, like, she gives it the, the grenade, the flash grenade, and, like, catches on fire, and then everything it touches starts burning. And I'm just like, that's how I feel about my creative life, honestly, is everything <laughs> I touch bursts into flames. But <laughs> that's I me playing kind Assassin's of- Creed. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like the idea of that because there's always that thing of, like, fire is kind of alive. Like, it does most of the things that living things do. And then it takes this fire and it, like, multiplies it across everything else that it's just been growing exponentially and, like, destroying through its weird genetic stuff. Hmm. Um, and I like the fire thing just because of that reason. But the rest of it, I'm just like, I don't understand. And it was weird and not creepy in a way that, like, it was creepy in the way that, like, a weird person in a morph suit dancing with you and not letting you escape a room is creepy. Um but it wasn't trying to be creepy in that way, which I think was the problem. So I do, this is kind of the part where I, I can't separate my feelings about the book from my feelings about the movie. Do you mind if I kind of like tell you how the end of the book went and we'll talk about the comparison? That is fine. That is fine. So the lighthouse like is featured in the book. It's it's quite important and it's it's where she learns that there were previous expeditions. Uh, she, she learns that like her husband was part of a previous expedition, but the idea of the doppelgangers is not as direct. Like she never finds like direct proof of that. Um, huh. There's also a tunnel underground that they, they refer to it as a tower, but it is going straight down like an inverted lighthouse, which like that was a super cool, like messing with perspective thing. And there's like a creature down there they call the crawler, which is described as kind of a slug like humanoid gelatinous thing. And she needs to get to the bottom of the tower so that the sort of finale is she passes through the body of the crawler, like through its gel and its like substance and that is where she possibly transforms into something or becomes infected by something so that was sort of the equivalent of the the eyeball thing that that ate the psychologist but there was no doppelganger in the book and the book ends with her walking up the shore heading toward heading like deep not necessarily deeper in because she's at the shoreline already but like She's heading through Area X, and she finds herself with this, like, affinity for it, and she doesn't want to go back home. Whereas in the movie, she, you know that she went home, and you know that, uh, that she, like, got out and may or may not actually be a double of herself. So the book ended in a much more ambiguous way, and the book also put a lot less emphasis on her husband, who I refuse to think of as anyone other than Oscar Isaac. Like, if his <laughs> character has a name, I will not speak it. He's Oscar Isaac. <laughs> um, so, so there's much less emphasis on him and more emphasis on her backstory. There's a lot about, like, she's a biologist, um, but mostly of animals and, like, amphibians and coastal like transitional environments so coasts um 
a place where one kind of environment blends into the other. And it talks a lot more about her scientific work and less about her relationship. And the affair is not mentioned at all. There is no, unless it's in the later books and I'm forgetting, which is possible. But it's... I don't think, off memory, I don't think anything in this movie is based on the later books. I'm pretty sure it's all just taken from this. Yeah, book. yeah. I heard that they kind of accidentally... The, the, I heard that the the director has not read the pre, the later books, but some of the things, yeah, I don't think like the doppelganger thing or the implication that the Southern Reach is like sending people out into the world pops up in the other books as well. But I think they just uh, okay, popped up. Interesting. You know, they they sprouted separately. Yeah, I'm yeah because the director didn't read the other two books. Yeah, um, so I'm not sure how much of that was actually taken from the other two, but that's interesting i i literally just bought the books on amazon right now because i was like i actually really want to read this book now that you start saying all this stuff <laughs> i really i think um, you'll really like it i mean i love enemy's writing he's such a good writer and i feel it would be like so hard to translate his writing into screen and i'm actually really impressed by how well they managed to do with what they did with the movie because his writing is just so unsettling but he writes it in a way that it feels you know, normal for the book. Like, yeah, it's yeah. not normal, obviously, but it's like, you read it all like, okay, this is happening in the book. And the characters in the book are like, yeah, this is happening. Because um, I've only read a couple of his things, but both of them, I was just like, I just love how he writes the weird stuff. It's so good. <laughs> Part of why I really like his books is that sense of like normalcy in the uncanniness. And like, it's, it's all very weird and uncomfortable, but at the same time, it's very comfortable and... If, if we're really going to, like, psychoanalyze that, I think part of why that is is because I'm a very anxious person. So when I read something that corroborates my anxiety while at the same time is saying, like, yeah, but it's kind of okay. Like, you still have, like, you can still find yourself and you still have your career. And, like, in the case of uh, Annihilation, you know, you have the core of, like, well, possibly <laughs> you have the core of, like, who you are, right, and your mission and... But at the same time, also probably some of your insides are turning into plants. But it's it's fine. It's fine. Like it's it, fine. it kind of <laughs> um, it like it almost makes me feel better because it takes fear and puts it out in the open and says like, yeah, there's horrible things growing under your skin, but you're still alive. I guess. I think that's a good way to say that. That's a good way to take from it. I don't even know if that's like. Intent. I don't. I don't know if that's intended at all or based on his own like history or not. But I have wondered about whether that's why I uh, am drawn so closely to things like this and things like Born, which is also very much about creating mm. a safe haven in a very strange, very aggressive world. I wonder if that's why I'm so drawn to them as well. I'd never thought about that before, but that's entirely possible. And also, I mean, if we're if we're gonna kind of go down that route, I think that's why I tend to like stories where you know everybody's gonna die at the end too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you've got like, even if you don't know what's gonna happen, you've still got some knowledge of the resolution. Yeah, and you know that like, you don't have to really worry. Like you, you're not. It's uh, the difference between anxious and nervous, right? Like you're not worried about an unknown. Yeah. You you know exactly what you need to be worried about because <laughs> it's very obvious how horrible it is <laughs> yeah so you've got here in the notes just this note the importance of 
Padme talking about Ventress. Padme obviously being Lena, <laughs> yeah. um, Nelly, Portman's character. I just read that without even thinking about it. I am curious what you're thinking about there, or what your thoughts are on that. Oh, it's literally just the Star Wars reference. Um, okay, you just wanted to do that. I was like, <laughs> is it about her, like, talking about her when she leaves the lighthouse or something? I'm not sure. <laughs> no, it was literally just that, like, she, she calls out for Ventress or something at one point, <laughs> and I was like... I'm watching the Clone Wars now. But Yeah, that did kind of job me out of it a couple times. I, I, Whenever they said Ventress, I was like, Ventress, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I do think um, I have in my notes about Ventress too the uh, exposition. There's the part where they're in the boats and the... I guess that's a good time too to talk about like the sets of this were beautiful. The creatures were amazing. The world definitely felt like the book and the, maybe the visuals weren't exactly the same, but it was... It, it felt that, like, uncanny sense of sort of overgrowth it was very similar, and I really liked that. But there's a scene where they're in the boats, and Ventress and Lena are talking, I think it was, about how every member of the team has a reason not to want to go home, or, like, a reason... I think that's Shepard and, Vin- and Lena talking in that one. Oh, okay. Man, this is why I need to watch it again, too, because I always, like, lose track of who's <laughs> who and, like, anything. Um yeah. So, okay, well, that's, that scene I thought was, was interesting because it was definitely, um, exposition heavy. It was very clearly like, this is this character's backstory and this is this character's backstory, but it didn't feel stilted partially because the entire movie is so uncanny that the Mm. artificiality of it felt very intentional. And I was wondering if you picked up on that as well. I did as well, and I think it's partly because Shepard as a character is kind of uncanny feeling. Like, she feels like she knows a lot, but she never really talks openly about it. And so when she, like, has these thoughts about these characters, it seems less like the movie giving exposition and her kind of trying to explain the world for herself and for Lena, if that makes Mm. sense. The way she talks is really interesting, and I really like it. Um, it's it's a little bit off-putting, and I dig it. This is definitely a reason that I'd like to rewatch it because each of the characters did have their own kind of journey and their own uh, sort of motivation. The one that I liked a lot was the Josie, the physicist, who just kind of graciously becomes a plant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah was very creepy but also like she was so happy about it <laughs> yeah it was such like a peaceful thing for her i the first time i watched it i totally missed that she actually had sprouts like growing out of her arms i just thought she'd like put plants on her hand because why whatever um and so when she turned to like a plant i was like what just happened what where'd she go and then when i saw it in cinema I saw that she actually had plants growing out of her and she was actually turning into a plant as she was walking away. And suddenly everything made a lot more sense. Um, but yeah, her death is like sad, but not sad in the same way everyone else's is. Like she wants to be part of this world. Um, yeah. And honestly, turning into a cool looking plant human sculpture thing is not the worst death in this movie. <laughs> no, it's it's really, really not. I think that one <laughs> that that brings us back to the bear. That's probably oh, the God, worst the death in this movie. That bear. I hate it. I hate it so much. I love it and I never want to see it again. <laughs> I mean I hate it because it's so good. It's just Yeah. I it's whoever never really get freaked out by things in movies. Yeah. Like I don't tend to and that just that was beyond creepy whoever like mixed that sound i Mm. i I hope they get an award (laughs) 
Um, yeah, the sound design in this movie is really good. Like, that's one of my favorite things about this movie, I think, is just how good the sound is. I don't know. I had, when I saw that scene, when I was thinking about it afterward, I was wondering, like, I know I've read, and maybe you can help me recall whether this is actually something in, like, something we've both read or, or not, where people have written this before, where creatures talk in human voices or, like, scream in voices on uncannily human. Like, that's yeah. been in books before, right? Like, that description sounds familiar. Yeah, there's definitely been things before. And people talk about with that with, like, um, oh, what are they called? Some kind of wild cat creature mountain lions i think they scream and it sounds kind of weirdly like human screaming yeah, like maybe? kind of off human screaming i think i've heard that a bit um, yeah maybe that's what i'm thinking about how just like some animals sound like that but to actually hear it and to mm. hear it in this like from this like terrifying creature was just like something very you know primally scary about it yeah that was like that kind of scared me down to my core it's just it's so it's that wrongness of it it's so wrong and it shouldn't be like that and that they did it in such a way that it doesn't feel like contrived no like it felt too over the top it felt actually genuinely scary it felt very natural but in a way that just like made it so much worse (laughs) because you were like you just kind of knew like where the sound would transition like you could see the waveform of it it would like top off with a human scream you know yeah. <laughs> like oh it was i love yeah. it but i never want to hear it again someone someone in our session like started laughing hysterically at that point and i was like fair call bro fair call because <laughs> same <laughs> yeah that was i think that bit was kind of the bit where i was like yep this is a scary movie but it was also the bit where i was just really impressed by how yes. well they carried that like uncanniness through like the Vandermeer kind of creepy weirdness through into a movie because I I'm honestly like I I really love this movie it's not perfect and I do definitely have issues with it but like on the whole I'm just incredibly impressed with the fact they actually managed to capture that Vandermeer creepiness in some form yeah and now I I really want to see if they ever do a movie uh, make a movie out of Bourne I would be I would love I'd be there for that movie yes um I'm, <laughs> like, I'm rereading so that much. now because of that previous comfort in horror thing we were talking about. Mm. Um, so in terms of Lena herself, she is defined as kind of a loner. I think you see it mostly in that scene where she's at the balcony with the others the day before they go in. She kind of hangs back by herself. But I found that that was, her motivation was primarily uh, based on her husband, and the whole affair Mm. subplot just kind of, I was rolling my eyes at it a lot, because it was, (laughs) it was like a really big excuse to have like a sex scene or several in this movie, which the book did not have, and... At first I was like, maybe it's an, it's like a, it can be considered plot relevant because it shows that maybe she like infected another person, but mm. I couldn't get past like, nah, they just needed a sex scene in it. <laughs> like, I don't, I, I didn't really like that. Yeah. Did they, was there like explanation for the motivation of the husband in the book? There was, um, the, like, the husband's story was quite similar, where he had been as part of a team that had gone, uh, gone in, but you didn't get as many scenes, you didn't get flash, as many flashback scenes with them. Right. And you got more of Lena's career. There were, like, there, there were quite a few scenes that 
Excuse me. I'm sorry. I keep yawning on podcasts. <laughs> That's so good. It's late. <laughs> um, I've been doing podcast stuff for like a million hours. Um, uh, yeah, there, there are, I, I was actually, um, when I reread it, as soon as I saw the movie, I was not surprised because I'd read it before, but I guess kind of it cor- corroborated, um, my feeling from the movie that, the structure was actually quite similar, where there were quite a lot of flashbacks in the book, but they were some of them were more based on Lena's career by herself. A lot of them were based on she had always felt a little bit distant from her husband, just because they were very different types of people, which I think we see a little bit in the movie, where he's like kind of this wholesome, like military guy who doesn't seem to have a lot of ulterior motive, and she's kind of the more dour, more secretive one. But the, like, the affair, the fact that in a movie that's really was heavily focused on women, there's all these flashbacks to, like, yeah, but there's men in her life. Like, yeah, I, I just, it, it was Hollywood, like, I feel like they had to check the box off and they did, you know? Yeah, I wasn't super into that. Though I do appreciate the line where she's like, he's like, you don't hate me, you hate yourself. She's like, yeah, but I hate you too. And I was like, yeah, go girl. Mm, <laughs> I do like yeah. that line. But yeah, the whole affair thing is, I don't know, it feels it feels like they needed more of a reason for what happened. And so they were like, affairs make sense, let's do one of those. Um, because I guess that's, I don't know, that's what Hollywood does. Because then it gives him, like, a real reason to want to self-destruct and her a real a reason to have the guilt to go find him, maybe. Yeah, yeah. That's what um, I was kind of thinking about that, too, about how it's her reason not to want to go back. Like, because she has all this guilt and she has this, like, these two ties now that she doesn't really... I mean, she wants to have the tie to her husband, but she doesn't want it to be complicated by this affair. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think... Okay, my biggest issue with this movie at the end of it is just that, like, at the end it kind of insinuates that she's the the double instead of herself, mm-hmm. I guess. But there's no point that she could have swapped with the double to then make her... I don't... There's no... I don't. The second time I watched it, I just could... I was just looking for the point where it swaps the characters and it doesn't do it. And I'm just frustrated by that. I thought that maybe it was supposed to be implied that they swapped when they were, like pressed against each other when she was trying to get out of the door. Huh. But it was, there was no, like, there's no indication of that except that it's just a really intense scene. Like, it really focuses on her face and, like, it's this very claustrophobic, like... Yeah. You know, weird, like, embodiment in the very, like, literal sense of that word. Hmm. And so I figured it was maybe then, but... Yeah, I, 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 there's certainly, I don't think there's, like, a gotcha moment, like, when you watch it again, you can see yeah, that that's Yeah, because, like, the, the double thing, the weird gimp suit thing, turns human, like, as it's holding the flare, and then it bursts into flames, and I'm just like, I don't know, the phosphorus grenade, I guess. Yeah. Um, and it just, that, that just drives me up the wall, because I hate it when movies do that to me, when they're like, oh, look at this twist, and it doesn't actually give you a point where you can, like, find where that that twist happens in the movie that just drives mm. me up the wall and I hate it uh, but I do like I love this movie but yeah there are a couple things that just get me and that's one of them the ending definitely had that uncanniness with like 
where you kind of realize that, like, the two of them, it's possibly, depending on how you interpret it, the two of them are both actually alien doppelgangers. Yeah. So it's kind of about, like, it's a love story between, like, the Southern Reach itself, um, which is... Ooh, I like that. Yeah, which is really interesting, but I also don't necessarily think that was supported by the rest of the movie um, in a way that that makes it, you know, it's not functional. Like, it's a fun theory, but it doesn't really add anything functionally or emotionally. Yeah, and I also wonder if possibly, because she never says yes or no to if she's actually Lena, I wonder if she is actually her and, like, her eyes just glow and weird because she's been changed by that place, and she's just kind of taking, you know, comfort from this... Not her real husband, but someone kind of that looks like him, who yeah. has no real reason to hate her at this point, mm. um, which could be another interpretation of it. And that's kind of the one I'm sticking with, because if I don't stick with that one, it might drive me up the wall. That's really interesting, too, because then that's the idea that she was, like, in love with the Southern Reach the whole time, which is also cool. Yeah, I like that idea. But, it, I but I, I'm going to stick with that. <laughs> maybe it's a failure of my own imagination, but it, it checked so many of the boxes of like your typical Hollywood romance that I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't. I can't fully get behind the idea that it's a, a sort of an alien romance. That's fair. That's fair. And I think, yeah whether or not the movie wanted to be weirder than it is and kind of got pulled back by it being Hollywood. Because, I mean, it had the issues with the marketing and the and the release even. Um, who knows how much actually got paired back during the development as well. True. Which is unfortunate if that did happen. I have no clue if it did or not. Because um, it could have gone full weird and I would have loved it like 10 times more, I think. Yeah, I wanted... Because the way that the book ends is like... She's very purposefully just walking off into the jungle, and I, I do really prefer that ending, I think. Mm, that sounds like a good ending. So I guess our consensus is that it's we like the movie, but we wish it was a different ending. Yeah, that it was it was good but flawed, and I I, I'm, I was definitely kind of worried that like some of my... Because the friend I went to see it with had also read the books, and we were both... A lot of the conversation we had afterward was about um, what was partially about the whitewashing, which I think is also an issue that needs to be noted. And, yeah. But also about the um, how different from the book it was. So I thought that maybe I was biased because it was, you know, it wasn't what I thought it would be in my head, whatever. But I'm kind of glad to hear that, like, you think the same thing without the preconception. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think at times when it comes to, like, adaptations from books, there are times to, like, let it go of the differences but then there are also times when maybe the differences weren't good changes um and like it's fair to call those out if they don't work with the film as much as you know they could have uh so yeah and it's also interesting hearing you say those things and realizing that some of the things i have issues with are different in the book and they may be because they aren't straight from the book that they clash more with the film than other things i guess Mm. yeah and I, hopefully, we will one day be able to talk about a born movie, because Ugh, I really dream. want to know. The dream. I will have to talk about fan casting a born movie some other time. <laughs> yes, another yes. time. That would be good. Yes. All right, are there any last thoughts you have about this movie? Um, I don't think so. I definitely recommend it. Um, the bear haunts my 
waking dreams and nightmares. Oh, God. That's that bear. Awesome. That bear. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay, cool. So that's us for this episode. We'll be back soon with more books and more games and more nerd stuff. Uh, for now, you can find us on Twitter at Western underscore Reaches, or you can find us on iTunes and other podcast places as Western Reaches. Please leave us a nice rating and a nice review because we appreciate it a lot if you do. Um, Megan, where can people find you online? People can find me on Twitter at blog full of words. Um, my newest fiction piece is buried underneath the log in your lawn written in thousands of mycological spirals. You can find it today in any place that you find it yourself unexpectedly. <laughs> that sounds... I just get pure silence for that. <laughs> I was like trying to pass it and I was like, wait, did you write a fiction piece? No. No, I'm just oh. I'm just making it up. Sorry. Oh. Oh. You just went... Yeah, I was like, is this true or untrue? I can't tell, but I like it's it. It's completely untrue. <laughs> Damn, I got excited about a new fiction thing from you. How dare you raise my hopes like this? Um, okay, I'll get to work on that. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at WandaLustin, um, and you can find some of my writing at ToshiStation.net, even though I haven't actually done that in a while. Uh, look for me on WandaLustin on Twitter. That's it. It is late, and we both probably need to... I need to nap, and Megan needs to sleep, probably. We will be back soon. Don't forget to check the Western Reaches. Bye!